2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SupChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gould coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On August 14th of last year, the CGTN anchor Cheng Lei, an Australian citizen, was detained in Beijing and placed in what is called residential surveillance. Six months later, in February of this year, she was formally arrested and charged on suspicion of illegally supplying state secrets overseas, according to the Australian Foreign Minister, Marisa Payne, her case has raised many questions, leading some to suspect that this may be an instance of hostage diplomacy, like the well-known cases of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians detained and then arrested as a response to the arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. The detention of Lei took place during uh, and likely contributed to the precipitous downward slide in relations between China and Australia. It also prompted Two Australian journalists, Bill Burdles and Michael Smith, to leave China quite abruptly in September... Joining me today to talk about Chung Lei's case and its broader context are three guests, one of whom is the above-mentioned Bill Bertles, correspondent for ABC, who was, as I've said, in Beijing until fairly recently and joins us from Australia. Bill, welcome to Seneca.
0: Thanks, Kaiser, for inviting me on. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, great to have you. Also joining me is Lucy Hornby, who's been on our program several times before. Lucy is currently with the Harvard Fairbank Center uh, in Cambridge and was formerly a Beijing correspondent for the Financial Times. Lucy, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you, Kaiser. Nice to be back.
2: And finally, we're also joined by Donald Clark, professor of law at the George Washington University and a well-known specialist in Chinese law. Don, great to finally have you on the show.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here, Kaiser.
2: Well, before we get started, I should add that I do know Chung Lei personally, though I wouldn't describe us as close. I was really shocked, I think, as you all probably were, by her detention. Uh, She's somebody that I knew in Beijing and in more recent years would see her pretty routinely at World Economic Forum events. Most of our conversations were, you know, about pretty quotidian things like parenting and the Beijing food scene and whatnot. But Lucy, you might know her much better. Uh, let, let's start with you. Who is Cheng Lei, and what kind of work was she doing for CGTN? Uh, what were her relationships with uh, the other journalists in in Beijing like? What can you tell us about her?
1: So uh, Cheng Lei was really a nice person. I would see her at reporting events, but I would also see her at weekend soccer practices. She's got two young kids, and you know, as far as anybody could tell, her interests outside of work were very much the kids, and also she really enjoyed Beijing's dining scene. So she really liked going (laughs) out. So same things as me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No wonder you knew her, Kaiser. Right. Um, But she really liked to go out to sort of fancy dinners. But, you know, other than that, it was really the kids, the kids, the kids. Um, We went on some reporting trips um, together, Uh, so saw each other sometimes outside of Beijing. Um, But mostly we saw each other in Beijing in just a a very kind of normal, everyday context, as you would expect for somebody who's a working mom.
2: And how did you first hear about her detention?
1: I was quite shocked to get a text message from somebody, actually, a Chinese journalist mm. who knew that we were friends.
2: Yeah, yeah. What do we know, Lucy, Bill, about the, the circumstances or the ostensible reasons for her initial detention? I'm being very careful here not to speculate idly. Uh, was there any indication whatsoever given by Beijing as to what her detention was about or, or what triggered it?
0: Yeah, to date, uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry has confirmed that she's under investigation for state secrets. Uh, the uh, precise wording in the uh, official formal arrest notice that was uh, granted at the six-month mark of her detention uh, was she suspected of uh, supplying or intending to supply intelligence or state secrets to a foreign organization or individual. So it's very broad, but that's the nature of the investigation. Hmm. That just seems so so far-fetched to me.
1: It certainly does, because, I mean, the interactions that any of us had with her, she didn't seem to be somebody who was meddling in anything of that nature.
2: Right, right, right. Don, what should we know about detention law in China? Uh, And did Cheng Lei's case deviate, to your knowledge, uh, from the way uh, that it was supposed to have been handled under Beijing's law?
3: Well, my understanding is she was first detained in the middle of August 2020, and then she was put into this thing called residential surveillance at a designated location. And what that is, it's a type of investigative detention in which you can be placed in a detention facility, which is not a regular detention facility. It is just the police's own, you know, guest house set up somewhere with bars on the windows and a big burly guy, you know, outside your door. Um, Mm. That can go for up to six months. And I noticed that, uh, you know, just uh, last month, February 5th, apparently, her... um, they announced that she was formally arrested. And that's an important um, stage in the Chinese criminal process because arrest is a taibu, which is a formal stage. It doesn't mean just detained. Obviously, she's been detained since August. Um, But once arrest happens, that's supposed to mark the end of the um, period of residential surveillance in a designated location. So she she now should be out of that and in a regular detention facility. So if she's not, that's something very irregular. So now she's had this sort of formal arrest, uh, and then another clock starts. What's that? Um, the clock that starts counting now is could go up for about seven months. and that would wow. Yes. <laughs> wow. And that could be for yet more investigation. You know, the criminal procedure law says, you know, you get a few months, but then if you want, you can get extended. And then if you want, you can get that further extended. Uh, the extensions require permission from higher and higher levels, and ultimately... Um, you know it could be extended forever as long as you got permission from say you know the national people 's Congress Standing Committee or something, but basically you know we 're talking about uh, about seven months until they send it to the procuracy so it 's the procuracy that 's the prosecuting organ once the police send them the case it 's basically a dossier it 's you know like a physical dossier of materials then they get about one and a half months again subject to extensions if necessary but the basic amount is one and a half months to decide whether to bring charges and then after that the court gets you know two months extendable to three months to have the trial and finish the trial now it's important to notice those limits have not been observed you know in the Kavrig spavor case because we're told that the you know sort of the indictment happened in the kovrig and spavor case I think, uh, cer- certainly more than, I think it was back in June or something. Um, and mm, and mm. so the trial should have been, you know, had and, and completed by now.
2: So uh, I'm wondering, though, in the, in her, during the initial stages of her detention, uh, was she given the access that she's supposed to have to Australian consular officials or to legal counsel?
3: Well, according um, to the news reports I saw, she was given monthly visits um, to uh, from the Austral- Australian consular officials. Um, she is not uh, entitled to uh, uh, legal representation uh, at that point, I don't think. I mean, I, I, my recollection is Kavrig and Spavor uh, did not.
0: Bill? Uh, yeah, yeah, just to jump in. yeah. So she's been given the monthly consular access visit. However, it's not a visit. It is a video call. This is a coronavirus measure. Uh, supposedly, China on one hand uh, talks uh, very correctly about how well it's contained coronavirus. On the other hand, it's always using it as an excuse, it seems, to deny in person visits, uh, consular visits, for people like Chang Lei or the other Australian who's in jail in Beijing, Yang Hung Jun. Uh, so mm-hmm. their, their video calls once a month. Uh, no legal access uh, for the first six months Um, there has been an effort by her supporters and friends to organize legal representation uh, but her lawyer has not been allowed to have any uh, formal contact with her or meet her whether or not this has changed since she was formally arrested to be honest i'm not quite sure that was only in the last month or so Um, sometimes we do see um some difference of uh, access and and detention conditions when they do formally go into criminal detention. But certainly those first six months, uh, she was left to only write letters to her two children and to her uh, friends and family. Uh, And those letters, of course, went through a filter of um, the uh, security organs who who are detaining her.
1: I think I should add something else, that when you get these consular visits, you're not allowed to discuss your case. Oh, really? No. You can only discuss your physical state and your comfort, uh, the conditions of your detention. But you have no ability to express to anybody what, you know, you think you may or may not have done. You have no ability to defend yourself in any way or to get the word out in any way. Um, And the consular official has no ability to provide you any support. So you're really left completely on your own Mm. uh, while this investigation, such as it is, goes on. Uh, And in her case, the other thing that has to be noted is that under the state secrets law, the government is under absolutely zero um, requirement to provide any evidence whatsoever to anybody, whether it's your lawyer, your consular official or anybody else. Um, So whatever it is they claim that they are charging her with, no one outside the police has to see that evidence.
3: I should add, once the case is um, transferred from the procuracy to the court, in other words, once they file the formal charge with the court, uh, at that point, they have to show their evidence to the lawyers, supposedly.
1: Even in state secret cases, Don?
3: So the question of uh, your right to a lawyer in national security cases um, is a little complicated. So um, as a matter of formal law, you have the right to a lawyer from the time coercive measures are taken against you, for example, from the time you're detained, uh, no matter what the charge. Um, But that doesn't mean you have a right to actually see that lawyer in national security cases and terrorism cases. um, You don't have the same rights as other kinds of suspects to actually meet your lawyer while in custody. Uh, You can only do that with the permission of the investigating organ, and they don't have to give it. With other crimes, they're supposed to allow the requested visit uh, within forty-eight hours. Now, uh, you know, even in other cases, we often hear reports of uh, defendants being denied, uh, you know, their right to um, either retain a lawyer of their choice or to see the lawyer that they have retained. Um, but that, in other cases, is a you know a violation of uh, China's criminal procedure law. Uh, But it is certainly true that in the national security cases, you don't even have the right to meet your lawyer during the investigation stage um, if the investigating authorities decide they don't want that to happen.
2: Right. Lucy, uh, so as you say, she was unable to discuss the actual details of her case during the consular visits, even though they were just video calls. Uh, What do we know about how Chung Lee has been treated so far in detention? What uh, her physical condition has been?
1: Well, it's varied a bit. Um, As you may know, when the Chinese have you in detention, they often insist that a person sit very straight and stare straight ahead for hours at a time. Uh, In her case, she was getting back pains. She got some reprieve on that and was allowed to relax a bit. And then that reprieve was taken away, Mm. Um, again, without explanation. She's also had periods where she's had people in the room with her at all times uh, and other periods where people are not. She's had periods where she's been permitted uh, to read and other periods where she is not. Hmm. So it seems very variable. And again, I'm, I'm not aware that people know why these conditions are
2: changing. And, and Bill, do you know where her family is now and how they're doing? Are they back in Australia now?
0: Yes. Yeah, so her family situation, um, it's a little bit complicated, but... Uh, she so she's a single mother of two children. She's divorced from her uh, husband, who's a Chinese national. He's in China, but the two children are in Melbourne with her mother. Now her parents are divorced as well. So her father, both mother and father, actively involved, of course, in in trying to help. Uh, but they're um, in different cities. He's in Perth. She's uh, the mothers in Melbourne. Now Chang Lei's mother is in her well into her seventies, and so when I interviewed a representative of the family the other day, it was actually. Chung Lai's niece, but they're quite similar in age. So, you know, they sort of had a bit more of a, I suppose you might say, sisterly relationship or maybe more like cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, she was making the point that... Uh, Chung Lei has an 11-year-old daughter now, a 9-year-old son and you have this grandmother in her 70s who is finding it pretty tough to be single-handedly looking after these two kids in Melbourne. There are obviously other family members who are helpful and supportive um, but it's not an easy situation at all for the broader family and these two kids of course uh, are at an age where they are aware of what's going on, but maybe not completely understanding of of the circumstances. So, um, you know, I've had quite a few people get in touch with me to say, look, is there anything we can do to help the family? I'm not sure if there is, frankly, but um, there are a lot of people concerned about her welfare just because of how many people in the Australian community, business community, at some point knew her or were friends with her in China.
2: Right, right. Bill, can you share with us uh, something about the circumstances surrounding your own decision to leave China uh, abruptly, as I've described in September of last year? Were you able to glean anything at all about the Cheng Lei case, since ostensibly you were going to be questioned by Chinese law enforcement in connection with Cheng Lei?
0: Yeah. So. Um First thing, I'd just say I didn't decide to leave China. I did not want to leave. I had no choice in the matter. The Australian government were determined to evacuate me. Um, Now, the uh, reason that the Chinese National Security Police turned up to my door at midnight and also the door of another Australian journalist, Mike Smith, was, in their words, because we were involved in Lei's case. And they didn't Mm. give us many details at the door that night. Um, They just told us we have an exit ban and we can't leave because the Australians, they had word of this and so they were trying to get us out. They 're obviously very worried we were going to be detained, but we weren 't The whole thing was very curious, but eventually, after a lot of toing and froing and diplomatic negotiations, uh, we did have to separately submit to these police interviews or interrogations uh, with the Chinese national security police. Mine was in a Beijing hotel room in the Zhaolong Hotel in Sanlington. Ah, I know it well it 's out of Renault. It used to be a bit of a dump, but it 's now like a sort yeah. of mid priced holiday inn. Um, anyway, now, the interview, it was one of those classic, you know, Chinese cops sitting around. They've got a video camera filming me, just like what you see on TV quite often. And um, there were a lot of sort of 101 get-to-know-you questions. You know, what's your name? What's your passport number? Uh, how long have you been a journalist here? But then they eventually did move on to Lai and they asked me a series of questions, things like... When did you first meet her? Who introduced you to her? Did she ever did you ever use electronic means to communicate with her about work issues? You know, there there was a series of questions which in theory if I knew Chung Lei a bit better and I worked clo- closely with her, you know, it may have been legitimate attempts to gather evidence, but because I wasn't really the best person to interrogate about her, I, I know her, I'd say I'm friends with her, but not very close, um, I obviously didn't really have any answers which would be of any use to them. And right. they didn't really make that much effort to kind of follow up. It appeared to me that they knew from the outset that, especially Mike Smith, the other journalist who doesn't know her at all, they knew that this wasn't really a legitimate effort to, uh, to get evidence for her case. And ultimately, we finished up the interview and off we went. Um, but unfortunately for me, of course, I asked questions to them. <laughs> you know, well, while you're at it, uh, what's this case about? And look, I don't know if the actual older Beijing cop who was given the task of interrogating me, I don't even know if he would have been privy to any information. It seemed to me like he'd been chosen to do this job simply because... Maybe he was good at it. You know, he had a bit of fun toying with the foreign journalists. But I didn't I didn't learn anything new at all from, from those forty five minutes.
2: So these were public security officers, these were not Ministry of State Security?
0: Yeah, so at my door, there were... So seven people turned up to my door at midnight. The first two were in your normal police uniforms, you know, the light blue Mm -hmm. summer uniform. Um, And then behind them, there's five people in plain clothes. Now, they're all wearing coronavirus masks, but, you know, they look like they were the ones running the operation. Um, The guy at the door pulls out this shiny badge with the public security crest on it, and it's said in both Chinese and English, Beijing National Security Bureau. And, you know, he's an old Beijing hmm. cop, um, you know, lull Beijing accent and everything. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether... I, I didn't get the impression... And he was the one who ended up doing the interrogation. I didn't get the impression he was really the one sort of doing the the broader investigation into Chung Lei. He didn't really seem like the type. It, it almost felt like him and, and the, the people next to him in the hotel room, their job was to kind of carry out this this interview-slash-interrogation uh, they seemed to know from the outset that it wasn't going to garner any proper evidence, whereas the people actually pulling the strings and running the investigation into Chung Lai, I suspect they, you know, they were behind the scenes.
3: Um, so Bill has observed that it was not actually public security, but uh, state security, according to the badge. Um, from from the Beijing level. You know, this is the state security bureaucracy, which you have at the central level, at the the municipal level, and and down below. Now, that's interesting. That was exactly the same people that, uh, in my understanding, um, um, detained and have been doing the investigation of Michael Covery. In other words, it was Beijing, not the central, and it was state security, not public security.
2: Don, just in case our listeners aren't aren't familiar with it, maybe you could explain the difference between state security and just good old public security.
3: Sure, so these are two different uh, ministries at the central level and, and typically, you know, local government divisions mimic what goes on at the central level. Um, right. And so at the central level, you have the Ministry of Public Security. And at the Beijing level, you have the Beijing Bureau of Public Security. And they do, you know, kind of normal police work. So at the municipal level, you know, they do traffic, they do investigations of murders and, and, and theft and, and things like that. Um, but parallel to them, uh, you have a Ministry of State Security. Um, right. and, and that's just a completely different ministry, although it is parallel to the Ministry of Public Security. And they also exist at the central level. There's a minister. They exist at the municipal level, you know, where there's a, you know, I don't know what you call it at the municipal level, just the head of Beijing um, state security. And they do things like these, you know, counterintelligence um, uh, operations so their their remit would be similar to that of the fbi in a sense
2: right 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 i was going to suggest that that you might say mm. uh between police and fbi yeah. although there isn't a national police function as Correct. there is in china mm. right great thanks that's very helpful just now we've we've made a couple of comparisons to the case of the two michaels michael kovrig and michael spavor is this do you think analogous to that. Is, there a, is this a form of hostage-taking that's aimed at Canberra? Uh, and if it's not hostage-taking, maybe her arrest can at least be seen alongside other non-traditional tactics in, in foreign policy, things like trade sanctions. Don, what do you think?
3: Sure. I, I think it's hard to say it's parallel to the Kovrig-Spavor cases, because I think the Kovrig-Spavor cases are pretty clearly a hostage-taking in the sense that you know it's pretty clear what Canada has to do To get them free uh you know they've china has of course been hinting without actually saying so because they don't want to say this is a hostage taking but they have made it through their various representatives pretty clear that these cases are connected whereas in 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 the case of Cheng lei it's hard to see a specific thing that china is telling australia do this and then we'll let her go um it could on the other hand you know be a sign of you know this deterioration in relations, and 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 possibly it's the kind of thing where someone lower down in the bureaucracy takes some action, and then those uh, higher up, uh, you know, are kind of stuck with it, and they can't do anything to 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 reverse it.
2: Bill, I know you wanted to say something, but let me get get to Lucy here. Just um, so. Beijing, of course, Lucy has has denied that there's any connection between Cheng Lei's detention and the, the decline in in the relationship between Australia and China. But uh, I, is there more than just the circumstantial evidence that this is in fact what Cheng Lei's detention and arrest is ultimately about?
1: Well, I think there's two things that um, are noteworthy. Uh, one is that the Global Times, which is well known uh, sort of nationalist tabloid, we often call it. Uh, it's not an official organ of the party per se. But they often use it to kind of float ideas. Uh, anyway, shortly after uh, Lei's detention, the Global Times revealed that Australia had expelled some journalists, Chinese journalists from Australia. And it certainly implied that there was a connection there. Uh, whether that's official or not, we don't know. The second thing that makes people see a connection to the international situation is the fact that Cheng li is actually a naturalized Australian citizen. She moved to Australia when she was about eight years old. Uh, her family is from Hunan in China. And in other cases where you have um, Chinese-born people of foreign citizenship, when they're detained, say, in business disputes or, you know, situations like that, um, there's often an effort to deny them uh, foreign representation or to not recognize that foreign citizenship. And that was not at all the case in Chengli's case. Um, She was immediately recognized as an Australian citizen. And um, the consular protocols were immediately uh, and precisely followed to the letter. So, you know, that's quite different from cases that we've covered in the past of, you know, Chinese-born people of foreign citizenship. Um, And it it certainly implies that she is being deliberately treated as an Australian, which, of course, she is. um, But it's a bit different from you know, cases that we've covered of business disputes. So this kind of implies that whatever the reason is that she's been brought in, and I want to emphasize here that even her best friends can only speculate. Like nobody has a clear idea what she could possibly have done. But whatever it is, it was unlikely to have been any sort of business dispute um, because they immediately treated her as an Australian.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm, That's interesting. Bill, Lucy just mentioned the expulsion ultimately of, of a couple of journalists uh, who were from China uh, in in late June of last year? ASIO, uh, the Australian uh, Security Intelligence Organisation, raided the homes of four Chinese journalists working in Australia for for Chinese state-run media outlets, including things like China Radio International. You know that those known den of of, of spies, right? Uh, can you can you talk about what they were alleged to have done and what happened to those those four journalists?
0: Yeah, so. In late June, the Australian security uh, organisation ASIO raided the homes of four Chinese state journalists living in Sydney. They were dawn raids, and they seized we, – we don't know uh, exactly. This is uh, from an account by uh, the Xinhua News Agency, China's state media, um, but uh, the journalists themselves say that ASIO officers seized their electronic devices – Uh, including things like their kids' iPads, took them away. The four journalists were not detained, but in the days or weeks after this happened, and it was not publicised at all... Uh, the Chinese embassy in Australia ordered all four of them to get on planes during the pandemic and get back to China. They did not want any risk of these four being further embroiled in an anti-foreign interference case. And and so on that same day when ASIO were raiding those journalists, other officers were also raiding the home of a local uh, Sydney politician and his political advisor, a man named John Jung. And ultimately, that is the investigation. It's an anti-foreign interference uh, investigation. Primarily, it appears into John Jung. He's he's lawyered up and he's going to fight it, so he obviously feels that um, he has a strong case. Uh, Somewhat worrying, I would say, is that to date, uh, we still don't have much in the way of transparency from either ASIO or from the Australian government departments that oversee it. Uh, to justify this uh, pretty, pretty intense uh, operation to, you know, arrest, uh, to, well, to carry out multiple raids and so forth. So uh, there's a bit of a debate uh, in Australia, not uh, among the sort of niche Australia-China-watching community, about whether or not ASIO should have raided these Chinese state journals because, of course, it was always going to result in retaliation in China, which it ultimately did. My view on it is we just don't know uh, how legitimate, how much merit the investigation and those raids uh, have, uh, because we're not getting the transparency from the Australian end that we we need to have.
2: Bill and and Lucy, maybe we could uh, work a little bit on getting this timeline down, uh, because it's important to know the order in which things happen. Lei's detention happened after, for example, the Morrison government started pushing for investigations into COVID origins, but it was before... Uh, China slapped sanctions on beef and barley and then later on on wine. Um, is that correct? And and so maybe we could quickly sketch the timeline of the, the precipitous decline and, and where Cheng uh detention fits into all of that.
0: Yeah, it was... How does, where does it start? Uh, it, it Lei's detention pretty much happened after most of uh, those issues. The Australians calling for a coronavirus inquiry. Uh, the trade strikes by China on Australian mm-hmm. exports had already commenced by that point. However, they, they, they continued even after she was arrested and for many months more. Uh, from time to time, the Commerce Ministry would ban other exports. So that was an ongoing thing that predated her arrest and continued after her detention.
3: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. In fact, it's probably worth noting that China has been intermittently blocking Australian exports in a variety of commodities for about two or three years now.
2: Right. So, what uh, are so some of these? The
1: relationship has deteriorated over the past, I don't know, three or four years. Uh, but then this summer, it really seemed to hit a low point.
2: Yeah, yeah. Lucy, there was another individual, a, a Chinese woman named Hayes Fan, who worked uh, technically as a, a news assistant. At Bloomberg, she was a good friend of Cheng Lei's. Like I said, a Chinese citizen, she was also detained in December 2020. Is there any reason to believe that her detention had anything to do with Cheng Lei's case?
1: Yeah, that was a big shock as well. Um, I worked alongside Hayes for many years at Reuters, uh, where she worked uh, on the TV department for Reuters. She went to Bloomberg in I think 2017. She was extremely highly regarded among the um, foreign correspondents as well as among the Chinese journalistic community for her professionalism. uh, She was very good, very uh, tenacious person when it came to chasing the news. And she was very good at getting interviews with, you know, key Chinese players, whether they be entrepreneurs, policymakers, you know, she was just a very strong, very professional coworker. People enjoyed working with her, and they really appreciated the quality of the work she did. The reason people think that there may be a connection is that uh, Hayes and Chung Li were very good friends. They really enjoyed going out to dinner together. Um, they were, you know, it was well known that they were good friends. Um, no, no, nothing, nothing sinister about that, of course. But when Hayes was also disappeared, uh, people immediately leapt to the idea that there must be a connection. Now, keep in mind, both women have now been held for some time uh, without specific charges or without specific information as to what might have triggered their
2: detentions. Don, maybe this is a good point to ask you about this. uh, Is there a difference between Chinese citizens' rights and foreign citizens under detention laws in China? No. Are they basically the same? No, no
3: difference at all. The only difference is that foreigners have this right to consular, consular visits, whereas Chinese don't. Right. Yeah, otherwise it'd
2: be extraterritoriality essentially. But um,
1: so translation though is that while Cheng Lei has the comfort of having at least one external visit per month, Hayes is not uh, authorized or guaranteed any legal or familial visit at all. Correct? And Tom? we
2: have no idea what what where she is or or there's been no word at all about where Hayes is. Right, Lucy, is that correct?
1: Uh, Correct. No, no one. Again, it's all speculation, but there's there's no indication.
3: Yes. And I think it's, you know, clear that, you know, when the detaining authorities know that someone is going to be looking at the detainee once a month, uh, even if they can't specifically ask questions about the treatment, that, you know, has got to have a constraining effect on what they do. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, Hayes Fan, you know, when you look at what people like uh, Gao Zhisheng, you know, the uh, lawyer who has disappeared, Mm -hmm. his reports of, you know, the threats they made to him, we can make you disappear forever, no one will ever know, you know, they can make threats like that to Hayes Fan, they can't really credibly make threats like that to Cheng Lei.
2: Right. Well, Cheng isn't the first CCTV or CGTN uh, newscaster to run afoul of Beijing. Uh, Rui Cheng Gong was de- detained about seven years ago in July 2014 uh, and subsequently indicted for corruption and sentenced to, I believe, it's like six years. Are there any similarities at all in, this, in these cases, Don? Uh, these are both kind of conspicuously Western facing reporters, both very cosmopolitan, uh both English speakers, very you know, arrested obviously for ostensibly very different reasons. Um, but is there
3: anything that, that that ties them? I can't really see anything that ties them, frankly. Mm. Uh, it seems in Cheng Lei's case, uh it seems very unlikely that it's about, you know, corruption. Whereas yeah. um in Ray Chung Gong's case, very possibly
2: and Bill, what is Canberra trying to do right now? What, what leverage do they have at all uh, in trying to address the chung Lei situation?
0: Well, not a great deal of leverage. But as the discussion about um, Hayes-Fan indicated, uh, this has gone from, I think, many people here assuming it was hostage diplomacy in response to the ASIO raids to actually being something a bit more complicated, that um, Hayes-Fan's arrest uh, kind of complicates that and makes it look like it's not a clear-cut case of simple hostage diplomacy at all. Uh, So for that reason, uh, I I think the attitude in Canberra is uh, you do what you can, uh, you, you make representations, obviously all the consular access you're allowed, but... There's a limit uh, to what you could do. And, of course, what they argue at the moment is that because uh, the relationship between Australia and China is not particularly good, there are fewer back channels for the Australian side to go through to try and uh, lobby or advocate for Chung Lei. Right. Uh, interestingly enough uh, because she was quite uh, well known in the business community, um, you have had some fairly prominent figures from the Australian business uh, groups going to say the Chinese embassy in Australia specifically to raise concerns about her case. So there are people mm-hmm. not just in government but in, in you know people who have friendly relationships, business relationships with China for many years who are going out of their way to try and express concerns. Aside from that though, in terms of leverage, th- there's not much in the way of leverage that Australia can really exercise.
2: And apparently there's all not not, not a ton of interest in the Australian public in and- in trying to get her freed uh, this is something that i want to talk about i mean we're all aware uh lucy flicked at it earlier of the way that beijing doesn't always draw a clear line between ethnicity and nationality and often treats naturalized citizens of other countries who are born in china differently than than they would foreign citizens or or, or nationals who aren't of chinese ethnicity uh, i think it's it's you know it's encouraging in 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 one respect uh, that Cheng Lei's ethnicity doesn't seem to have been a factor in her detention, and that you know they recognized her as, as Lucy said, as Australian right away. Uh, but speaking of Cheng Lei's ethnicity, I I've been really disheartened to see. Some of the comments online in Australia responding to her case. Uh, this is something that Lucy alerted to me in conversations we had prior prior to this this interview. Uh, let's talk about, for example, the op-ed that Clive Hamilton wrote. Uh, Clive Hamilton is the controversial academic who, probably more than any other individual, has raised concerns, his detractors would say, he's drummed up unfounded fears over Chinese influence in Australia. Uh, after Chung Lei's detention, he wrote an op-ed about her, uh, her situation in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, talking about the unwillingness of many Australians to come to her defense. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from that. I mean, it's really striking. He writes, Chung has for many years worked in Beijing for the CCP's propaganda apparatus. One Twitter user put it like this, Born in China, lives in China, works for a Chinese government broadcaster, what exactly makes Cheng Lei an Australian journalist? Yes, repeating this will outrage some, but that's how many in the community see her. She hasn't earned their support. Some will see the lack of courage as further proof of Australians' innate racism, but I don't think it is. If Beijing had arrested much loved Australian Benjamin Law or Kylie Kwong or Jenny Key, there would be a great outcry and intense pressure to do something. And when Sydney academic Feng Chongyi was detained in China while researching human rights abuses, his many friends in the academic world fired up and applied relentless pressure on the government. So Hamilton seems to be saying that she's less deserving of sympathy from Australians because she wasn't an an outspoken regime critic. Um, Is that how we were to understand this?
0: Um, Look, I've been... Not necessarily. I've been covering the two Australians detained up in Beijing. The other one, Young Hong Jun. It appears to me there's far more interest in Cheng Lei's case than there is in Young Hong Jun's case, primarily because Young Hong Jun's a guy who spent his career writing in Chinese about Chinese politics. Uh, the average Australian mm-hmm. can take zero interest, frankly, in, in his career. Cheng Lei, um, her, because obviously. There's, there's plenty of um, vision of her in English, talking about her life and career in China. It's been splashed all over the media here. I'd say there's far more interest in her case than uh, the other Australian up, up in Beijing. Uh, in general, though, yes, I suppose that uh, people would say, well, we've never heard of this person because, of course, CGTN is not exactly uh, widely watched in Australia, um, Uh, you know she has a chinese name born in china works for chinese state media i suppose quite a few people in the community would just say well you know if you're if you're over in china and you're working for the chinese government's uh, media operation you know what do you expect that might be the attitude of some people but even if there is that attitude out there i don't think it, it affects the sincerity with which the australian government or the australian business community is trying to advocate for her let's hope that's the case
1: um, I think it, it speaks to a broader phenomenon, which is that, you know, now you do have a lot of foreigners who are working in one way or another for Chinese institutions, right? Um, Chinese companies, many Chinese companies have foreign employees, Chinese universities, uh, Chinese media, right? So what are what are we going to do? Um, are we going to say that those people automatically give up uh, the rights that they were accustomed to, um, you know, in their own home countries? Or are we going to say on the other side, which is quite distasteful to the Chinese, that there's a certain extraterritoriality to foreigners working in China. And, you know, that is distasteful to Chinese because of, you know, the historic case of um, you know, foreigners having special and different rights in China. Um but I, I think more broadly it speaks to the fact that China is trying to simultaneously globalize, you know, interact with the world community, employ foreign citizens. But at the same time, you have this very, very closed political system, you have a very closed legal system, and uh, you have very little recourse if you are unlucky enough to get tangled up in that.
2: Mm-hmm. Don Clark, Bill Bertles, and Lucy Hornby, thank you so much to all three of you for making time. Uh, let's move on now to the recommendation segment to the show. But first, I want to remind everyone very quickly that the Cynical podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we're doing with this show and the other shows in the network, like New Voices or the China in Africa podcast or the new China Stories podcast or Tech Buzz or Strangers in China or Middle Earth or China Quarter Office or any of our other shows, then remember, the best way to support us is by subscribing to the SubChina newsletter the Access newsletter go to subchina.com slash subscribe and new subscribers get your first two months for just two dollars on to recommendations let's begin with lucy what you got for us
1: well i've actually been really enjoying um there's something called the revolutions podcast which is um hosted by a guy named mike duncan yeah that's great um, of course i love it doesn't quite compare to um, to yours, Kaiser, but it's <laughs> very interesting. Um, he, he goes over uh, the history of various revolutions. And what I'm enjoying right now is he's had a very, very lengthy uh, dive into the Russian revolution. Um, and so for those of us who are familiar with China, it's really interesting um, to see how communism and communism res- revolutionaries uh came out of Marxism, found uh, ground, uh, fertile soil in Russia, and how all that developed, because of course, that development historically in Russia, then had a huge influence on contemporary China.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to understand the history of Russian communism, if you if you are somebody who looks at China. I think people who, who, who aren't, intimately familiar. I mean, I was lucky. I started off doing Russia before I got really interested in China. That's that's where I started. So yeah, I, I can't agree. And that's a great podcast. Funny, I have a podcast to recommend as well, but I'll wait. Uh, Don, you're up.
3: Okay. Well, I have uh, two books and a piece of software. So uh, oh, great yeah, my, my first book, uh, going from the general to the specific, is uh, I think really one of the best Books on Chinese law uh, that has come out in a long time, but it'll be of interest to people, you know, who are just interested in China. It's called *The Construction of Guilt in China*. Uh, it came out mm. last year by a lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Her name is Yu Mo M O U, and it's based on, you know, incredible numbers of interviews, you know, and fieldwork done with police and prosecutors, so not just judges. We do have people who study judges and interview them, but this is with police and prosecutors. So she got incredible access, and sort of she talks about how a criminal case is constructed uh, in China, what happens before it gets to the court, which is critical, given that the conviction rate is over ninety nine percent so right. everything important in a criminal case happens before it gets into court and this is you know the book that really really uh, you know analyzes this again with lots of interviews so it 's not just you know high flown theory it 's lots of great anecdotes as well. Um, uh, the second book is this very interesting uh, biography of John Maynard Keynes, which just came out called "The Price of Peace." by a guy named Zachary mm. Carter, which is interesting, of course, not just because of what it says about Keynes, but about you know the whole development of that kind of theory and, and changes in how we think about you know, what, you know, the role of government uh, in the economy. And finally, th- the reason I want to recommend this piece of software, because nobody I know uses it, but it saves my life like almost every day. And it is a piece of software called X1. And uh, what it does is it indexes your hard drive and it's a search software, and it allows you to search in all kinds of ways. It does Boolean searching. You can search by, you know, full text. You can search by file name. You can search by path name, date, file size, file type, anything. So as long as you remember something, a few words maybe, little snippets of information about something that you saved on your computer 15 years ago, you can find it. Uh wow. and uh I literally I use it every day to find stuff. I can't remember where I put it on my computer, and it's tremendously useful. So X1. You have to pay for uh, it. I hope but there's a Mac it.
2: version of it. Yeah. I yeah. think you're a you're a PC using uh person yes. swimming in a sea of <laughs> Mac users though. So that's probably why none of your peers talk about it. All right. So two books and a piece of software. Bill, what do you have for us?
0: Uh, Just one that would probably be of interest, Kaiser, to the Seneca audience, Uh, this um, uh, report that's uh, up on the website of the Lowy Institute, which is well known in Australia Mm -hmm. as a foreign policy uh, think tanky type organization they 've got this new research out called being Chinese in Australia pretty comprehensive survey of uh, of attitudes of experiences of uh, the chinese australian community which of course many people have been in caught in the, the crosshairs of this increasingly uh, intense debate about china and australia so it 's full of all sorts of interesting uh, tidbits everything from attitudes uh, among people in the Chinese community to things like uh, democracy, to uh, levels of discrimination faced, particularly after the pandemic, right through to things like uh, attitudes whether, to whether or not the Australian media is too negative towards China and its coverage, uh, to how much they generally source their news from things like censored platforms like WeChat. So it's really fascinating, I think, for anybody who's been following the China-Australian debate, it's on the Lowy Institute website. Uh, being Chinese in Australia is what it's called.
2: That's fascinating, and I mean, it, it's it always strikes me that there's this parallel world. Always uh, Australia, China, U.S., China. There's always this temptation to kind of transpose anything that happens in Australia into the key of America. Uh, but I mean, I'm always warning people that they are not the same. That the power dynamic is very different. That you know, the kinds of, of of threats are very different. But at the same time, it's it's an irresistible thing to to always you know look for sort of parallel experiences. And and this that's happening right now, especially the experience of Chinese in Australia, uh, I think in many ways does very closely parallel the experience of Chinese Americans in the U.S. Uh, it's during during this time. I mean, we see uh, a new survey that I just caught a glimpse of that it, it has, you know, American attitudes toward China at an all-time low. And I'm sure that's the same right now in Australia for, for, for Chinese or for China. Yes, I noticed well, on deep. that
3: um, graph of American attitudes towards China, the current unfavorable ranking is lower than it was right after June 4th. Wow. So wow. she is getting tired of all the winning, I guess.
2: <laughs> I guess so um great thank you uh an excellent recommendation i'll check it out uh, i i like a lot of the stuff that Lowy institute puts out um mine is another podcast like i, I said uh, this is the british history podcast it's it's been going on for what 10 or 11 years now by a lawyer named jamie jeffers uh if there's a such thing as really in-depth pop history this is it uh Ten years now, I guess three hundred and sixty some episodes. He's managed to only go from the Neolithic, only up to about the mid eleventh century, and not quite to the Battle of Hastings yet. I mean, not even to the Norman, you know, to Norman invasion yet. I think he's at like about the year ten fifty. But it's just great, and I think it's only going to get better. The host has uh, not just a wonderful voice; got nice narrative style that works. A lot of humor. Um, so for your next long drive. or your Light, load up a bunch of these. Um, have my party, a cynical, um, Enjoy this. It's, it's quite I'm, I'm, I'm really hooked on it. Lucy Hornby, Donald Clark, Bill Bertels, great to have you all on. Uh, thank you so much. You've, I think, all brought a lot of uh, really valuable perspectives to this uh, from the journalistic standpoint, uh, the international relations standpoint, and of course from the legal standpoint. So thanks so much for joining, and uh, I hope to have you all back on the show not too long.
0: Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Kaiser.
2: Thank you, Lucy. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Cynica Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Cynica Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.